welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for the latest sermons and audio updates from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. at 1211 First Avenue North on the third floor. Guy who is a rat on the mob, who goes into witness relocation program. They move him across the country. They move him from the city to small town America. But when he gets to small town America... When he finds himself in Pawnee, or Hawkins, or wherever it is that he finds himself, nothing changes. He keeps using his old name. He keeps going on social media and talking to all of his friends back in the city. Everything he does is the same. He files his paperwork under his old name. He registers his car. He changes his Facebook status to now living in this new town. This would probably not be a good idea. Why? It defeats the point of witness protection if you don't change your identity. If you keep your name. If you keep everything the same. If you don't change anything, you just move away. What is the mob going to do. They're going to find you. So you can run and tell that to other people. Because if you don't, if you go into witness relocation, if you go into witness protection, and you don't change your name, if you don't actually change your ID, what's the point? It's pointless. Nothing's changed. The point of a new ID, the point of a new identity, is that it marks a life change. Whether you're a good guy or a bad guy, if you change your identity, you should change your life along with it. Because the less your life changes, the more pointless it is. You change your ID, change your identity, And don't change much in your life. What's the point? What's interesting, as we continue on in the book of Corinthians, is that the church in Corinth had experienced a radical identity change. They had been given a new name. They had been given a new town, a new place, a new space. And yet what was happening, again, and again, and again, in the church of Corinth, was they were acting just like their old identity. They were acting just like nothing had changed. And so much of what Paul goes after in the book of Corinthians, so much of what he's trying to shake them, to grab them by the shoulders and tell them is, look, you have been given a new identity. Your new identity is that you are united with Christ. You are one with Jesus. You have been united to His death and His resurrection. This has impacts. Your new identity affects the way that you live now and will affect everything about the way that you live in the future. But the Corinthians couldn't wrap their minds around that. And can we blame them? Hey, City Church, You're united with Christ. Cool. Live like it. Huh? 
The idea of being united to Christ is sometimes difficult for us to wrap our minds around. It's hard to understand how my identity is changed when I become a Christian. And so, what happens is, we don't really live like it. And this is what the Corinthians were going through as well. See, when we're united with Christ, it should change the way that we interact as a body, corporately, all together, the way that we treat one another. And it should affect us individually as well. It should affect what our lives look like. You see, if, if you were given a new name, if you were adopted into a new family, it should change the way you live. Imagine if somebody named, oh, I don't know, Bill Gates decided to adopt you and make you his heir. Now imagine if that in no way changed the way that you live. That would be strange. That would be weird. If you were adopted into maybe the richest family in the world and it didn't change your life, we would say, that's weird. And yet we have been united to Christ. And for most of us, we don't think about the way that that changes our lives. We fail to live into our new identities, both corporately, all of us together, and as individuals. So I want to show you how this works out in the first half of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So if you would, stand up, and I'm going to read the first 11 verses of 1 Corinthians 6. Paul says this, When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Would you not why not suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually unmoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. City Church, this is the Word of God written nearly 2,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. You see, the church at Corinth had been given a new identity. They had been given a new identity that they were one with Jesus. And they weren't living like it. 
And the first way that they weren't living like it is the way that they were treating one another. And, and Paul begins to talk about lawsuits. Now, it may seem like this is a weird thing for us, because I have hardly sued any of you in the church. Very few of you have attempted to sue me, and as far as I know, none of you in this room have attempted to sue one another. So it's really easy for us to go, well, this is not about us moving right along. And yet it helps for us to understand what the courts were like in Rome. You see, what Paul is talking about here is that they are suing one another. They're taking one another to civil court. And in Rome, the civil court was set up in such a way that there was something that always worked. If you had the most money, you won your civil court, your case, no matter what. No matter how right or wrong you were, if you had the cash, you could win. Right? This, is, this is something that we see sometimes when you see sort of the high-priced lawyers who win more often than the guys that are sort of have their names on the side of buses, right? Not naming names, but there's a lot of guys on buses. Apparently that's good lawyer advertising space. But in Corinth, if you had more money, you would win your court case. And so what happened was, the courts became a place where if you offended me, if you made me mad, and I was richer than you, I could take you to court and sue you more or less for being mean, for, for defaming my honor. And then I would take some of your money or your property. And so it was literally a place where the rich could get richer. And all they had to do is find a reason why I could sue you. Said something mean to me? Sued. Looked at me funny? Sued. Said something unkind about my child? Don't care if it's true. Sued. Right? It was like, it was like Oprah giving out lawsuits, right? And you get a lawsuit. You get, look under your chair. If you look under your chair, you will find a lawsuit for you, right? This is what, this is what the legal system in Corinth was like. Now think about this. This was so bad. This was such a part of their culture that even those inside of the church were settling their differences in the civil law court. And Paul says, look, the fact that you are suing one another means that you've lost already, right? Nobody wins this court case. Everybody's a loser. And he means that with the double entendre. Paul is, Paul is very sort of direct in this passage, where earlier he had sort of said, I'm not trying to shame you about this. Did you see what he said in this passage? I'm literally shaming you about this. Shame on you for the way that you're treating one another. Because what you're doing is, you're getting offended by the other person, you don't like what the other person has to say, and so the rich among you are extorting the poor inside the church. You are not living like a family. You're not living like brothers and sisters in Jesus. You're not living like you're united to Christ. Because if you're united to Christ, and I'm united to Christ, guess what that says about us? That we're united together. That we are one. 
that we are uniquely connected to each other. The, w- the way that the Bible sort of describes this is that we are a covenant community. Just like a marriage is a covenant, so the church is a covenant community with one another. That we are committed to each other. You see, when they started suing each other inside the church at Corinth, what they were showing was what their true love was, what their core commitment was, what their real belief system was, was their self. That I'm a part of the church community so long as it works out for me. And if that means I can make some money off of the church people, okay, fine. And if that means I've got to take them to court, so be it. And Paul uses his strongest language so far in the book of Corinthians to say, Stop it! Are you kidding me? You, you can just see Paul kind of like facepalming about this. Like, guys, guys, you guys, guys, you guys, stop it. He says, wouldn't it be better to suffer? Wouldn't it be better to be defrauded? You see, if our primary allegiance is to the covenant community of Jesus, guess what's going to happen when someone else slights us? Paul says, if we are working out the way that we are united to one another, when someone else slights us, when someone else hurts us, offends us, we are going to suffer through it. Why? Because we have been forgiven. Because we understand that we are not perfect, and we have also hurt others. Paul says, wouldn't it be better if you suffered for the sake of your covenant community, of your church? And that question comes to us in the same way. Wouldn't it be better for us, instead of being angry at one another, instead of trying to get one another back, instead of trying to whatever, if we suffered for the sake of the church? Now, here's the thing. Most of you have not been mad enough at one another to get to this level. So far. But our church is young and small, we'll get there. I'm sure there is coming a time when I will look at this passage and go, Paul and the Corinthians had it easy because you don't know about these people in St. Pete. However, the question of are we willing to suffer for one another inside the church is a sharp one. Because if I'm honest, I'm not. All morning long, I have been distracted by the fact that there are like several people out of town this morning. There are like a bunch of people who went out and enjoyed the festivities of Halloween. We literally have three regular attenders who were supposed to help in different roles this morning who are stuck on an island where they kayaked out to camping. And as I sat in my office this morning, all I can see is, nobody's coming to church. I'm a failure as a church planter. Everything's bad. Nothing is good. I guess I'll go eat worms. Right? I mean, I was completely Charlie Browning this morning. I was all in my own self-pity. 
I couldn't see anything good that was going on. I couldn't see city groups going well and people being connected to one another. I couldn't see people growing in Jesus. I couldn't see people beginning to read their Bible through our community Bible reading journals. I couldn't see the lives that are changing inside City Church. I couldn't see any of that. All I could see is, I don't have numbers to tell somebody on paper, woe is me, everything is bad, I'm bad, maybe I should quit. Why? Why is that what comes to my mind? Because I'm not willing to suffer. Because I'm not willing to grind. And Paul says, do you want to be really a part of a covenant community? Do you want to really show what it's like to be like Jesus' people? Suffer. Be connected. Grind out the hard work of community. Are you willing to give up your time to be a part of the community of your church? Are you willing to give up your treasures to see it happen? Are you willing to use your talents to see City Church move on? To see our covenant community grow? At times, I know I'm not. And yet this self-sacrificial love for a community that doesn't have it together is precisely the sort of counterculture that we are called to because we are one in Christ. Because every other community that we are a part of is a community that when we don't like it, we can easily throw it away. What happens, a lot of you CrossFit, right? What happens when things go bad at your CrossFit gym? There's another one a mile away. I'll see you guys later. In our culture, what happens when things with a group of friends don't go well? That's okay. I'll find some other friends. I don't need you. Our culture is one that shows zero allegiance to groups for long periods of time, especially when it requires sacrifice and suffering. And so the call of the gospel is to be radically counterculture. To show our new identity together by being connected and a part of the covenant community. But he doesn't just say that our new identity should change the way that we relate to one another corporately. He says it should change the way our lives look like individually. He says that because we are united with Christ, we are made new. That we have been, he used a lot of sort of theological words, a lot of big Bible words, that we have been sanctified, that we have been washed, that we have been justified. Those are all pictures for the change that comes to us when we trust in Christ and continue to trust in Him. And what he does in this passage is he lists off sort of a set of ten sins. And what ties all of these sins together, whether they're sort of the sexual sins that he lists early on in the list, or whether they're the other sins, like drunkenness and reviling, all of these sins are sins where we are grasping at something that shouldn't be ours. Where we're reaching out for something that we don't need to have. What he says is, you and I often go back 
to our fake IDs. Now, I don't know how many of you had fake IDs when you were younger. There are some of you in this room who are not 21 yet, and I'm not going to ask if you have a fake ID. But I had a friend who had a fake ID. A friend. And this friend who had a fake ID turned 21. And out of habit, after this friend who had a fake ID who turned 21, he kept his old fake ID in his wallet. And he would, out of habit, continue to use his fake ID. Friend, you're 21. Why are you doing that? You don't need to do that. You literally have a legitimate ID. You n what do you need that fake ID for? What's funny is that you and I build up a false identity. We build up our own fake IDs by the things that we say about ourselves. By the ways that we sort of self-identify. And we look at these and we go, that's what gives me value. What gives me value is that I'm the best at this thing. What gives me value is that I am the smartest in this group. That I'm the strongest. That I'm the fill-in-the-blank with the way that you perceive yourself. When you look in the mirror and go, things aren't great, but at least I've got this going for me. At least I'm a better mom than that other mom I've got around. At least I'm not like that guy. He's never at home to see his kids. At least I'm not... And what we do is instead of finding our identity in who Jesus says we are, we create our own identity and grab onto it. And say, you know what? I'm going to be this guy. And we create our identity in ourselves. And then Paul comes along with this list of these sins. And what happens when any time we come to a place in the Bible where it says, here are some bad things, right? In this passage in particular it says, you want to know who's not going to inherit the kingdom of God? These people. And he lays out this list. What happens in most of our hearts is one of two things. Either we look down the list and go, Guess who's going to heaven? This guy, right? I don't do any of those ten things. I am just fine. Sorry about y'all's luck. I'm good. Or, on the other side, we look at that list and we go, well, you know what? This is a bad list. This is a bad list because this list says that what I'm doing is not okay, and so I'm going to go ahead and throw out this list. Does God really care anyway? And so our, our two things that we do, whenever we come to a list like this, is to either pivot quickly to self-righteousness, or pivot quickly to throw things out. And neither one of those is helpful or healthy. Neither one of those is built on our identity and who we are. Because what self-righteousness does, what self-righteousness misses completely, is that, guess what? This is not the only list of things that are wrong with your life. This is not the only list of things that are wrong in my life. Paul uses the term here, righteousness. That anybody who is unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
guess what unrighteousness, the standard of righteousness is for God? It is absolute moral perfection. Good luck with that. No matter how self-righteous you can be, no matter what list of sins from the Bible you cherry-pick to go, I've got it together with, there's another list that's always going to indict you. So if you don't find yourself in the pages of the Scripture in this particular spot, I can take you to a place where you can. Trust me. We can get you there. Because the righteousness that we're supposed to have should humble us all should take our own self-righteous. The, the fake ID that I've got it together and that I'm morally better than anyone and throw it out the window. Because we are all unrighteous. On the other hand, what, what lawlessness does, what brushing off this commandment does, is it says that there's no opportunity for change. See, one of the most offensive things about Christianity is that it it actually really does have a moral code. It really does say, some stuff's okay, some stuff's not okay. And that's offensive. That's hard for us to swallow. That's hard for our culture to swallow. That God says, here's a list of things that are not okay, here's a list of things that are okay. Carry on. No. For most of us, we want to brush that off. And yet Paul says that the reason why we grasp onto these things, the reason why he gives this list of sins, is that each one of them is a fake ID. Each one of them is a way that we are misunderstanding, that we are enslaved to the things that we do. And he says, no, another life is possible. Just like we can change the way that we interact with one another, so can we be changed in the way that we identify ourselves. And again, it is rooted in this idea of union with Christ. This idea that we are one with Him. Because in this passage, it's interesting the way that it points to Jesus. It tells us that because of Jesus, we can have justification, we can have sanctification, being made right with God, and that we can be washed, that we can be cleaned of our sins and changed. He says, such were some of you. Change is really possible because of the gospel of Jesus. Does that mean it's today? Does that mean that you're going to go out of here this morning and never sin again? No, it doesn't. You will. But does it mean over the long haul we can see Jesus at work in our hearts? Yeah. Yeah, we really can. And the power of that comes from what Jesus did to us. It's interesting when he was talking about the way that we should treat one another as community. He said, wouldn't it be better to suffer? Wouldn't it be better to be defrauded by somebody else than to take them to the crooked courts? It's no accident that this harkens us back to Jesus. This puts Jesus into our minds because He suffered for us. He was defrauded and convicted by these crooked Roman courts. And He did that so that He could give us His righteousness. I love the, the creed or the, the confession that we said earlier. I am full of sin. 
You are full of righteousness. And what Jesus did on the cross is say, I will take all of that sin on me. I will take what I don't deserve so that you can get what you don't deserve. That's the message of the gospel. The reason why we can be accepted and forgiven in spite of the fact that we are broken and messed up is because Jesus on the cross took the brokenness, the messed upness on Him. And gave us His righteousness. That's what union with Christ is. He, we are united to Him in His death for the forgiveness of sins. We are united to Him in resurrection so that we can live a new life. A new life where identity is in Jesus. A new life where we are allowing the Holy Spirit to change us. Where we are letting go of the fake IDs that we hold on to. A new life where we live in community with one another. Where we are genuinely connected in sacrificial ways. This passage should ignite our imagination over what the world can be when we begin to change. And we begin to love each other well. We show what the world that is to come can be. We paint a picture of heaven on earth through the covenant community. May God give us the grace to do that.